0: You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives.
1: Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. Over a year ago, the entire world was introduced to an infectious disease caused by a newly discovered coronavirus known as COVID-19. While it first surged in Asia and Europe, the United States, and New York City in particular, quickly felt its wrath. As the situation escalated in early spring of 2020, the FDNY's Bureau of EMS Operations tackled monumental challenges. And while this emergency is still an ongoing one, the Department's response plans, capabilities, and contingencies are as ready as ever. With us today, our Assistant Chief Alvin Suriel, who oversees EMS Field Services, City North, Citywide Central and Citywide South. And Assistant Chief Jonathan Pistilli, who is responsible for EMS administration, including strategy and statistics, planning, and personnel. Welcome, Chiefs.
0: Hey. Uh, pleasure to be here? How are
1: you? Good to see you. First, let's start with your bios. You both report directly to the highest ranking member in EMS operations, Chief Lillian Bonsignor. So, Starting with our 38-year veteran, Chief Pastille, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background?
2: Sure. I started as an EMT back in 1983 out of Liberty Outpost in Brooklyn. Progressed to be a paramedic and then through the ranks as my career moved on. I've been a chief since 2008, deputy chief in Division Three in Brooklyn, division chief in Manhattan and Staten Island, and a deputy assistant chief and assistant chief in EMS operations
1: and our 32-year veteran, Chief Suriel.
0: I started in 1989 in the streets of Harlem as an EMT. This actually started as a summer job, and then I loved it. And in 1993, I got upgraded as a paramedic. I didn't start climbing the ranks till I decided to become an officer in 2005. And since then, uh, slowly but surely, I've been climbing the ranks. To my position where I am now, as you stated, my primary responsibility is that of uh, overseeing field operations. We all support what I feel is the backbone of this department, which is our EMTs, paramedics, and officers. So, pleasure to be here.
1: Thanks. It's good to see both of you. And today we're going to talk about our EMS response to the COVID pandemic. So, it's probably around January of 2020, and uh, Dr. Asada, who's the chief medical officer, Informs us through the World Health Organization that there's this pandemic in Asia. What's happening at that moment in time when he brings that to everyone's attention? What what do we start doing? How do we start planning?
0: I remember being interviewed by the New York Times. I guess it was a week before we hit 4,000 cases in New York, and I was quoted as saying, We've dealt with issues like this in the past, we're ready. And I don't want to say we weren't ready, but we had no idea that this was going to impact us the way it did. So it was kind of like unexpected. H1N1, we've done you know, Ebola, we've done, but this was different. Yeah. The swine flu, I mean, we, this has happened many a
2: time, right. but it never came to our shores with so much virulence. And it certainly didn't come as fast. We, we weren't expecting it to, uh, to grow as quickly as it did.
1: Yeah, it really was exponential, right? Unbelievable. Once it hit here, once we had patient zero or patient one, it was exponential from that point on. After the initial states of planning, which start with adding a fever, cough, travel, call type to the algorithm for call screening, what else starts happening at that point before we go into this whirlwind of call volume increasing and members getting sick?
0: Yeah, I think we realized quickly that our members were getting sick. I think it was we were at a 25% sick leave for our EMTs and paramedics and that was a quick concern what we haven't dealt with in the past was social distancing. Yeah, so that, that was a challenge for us.
1: As the members st- start getting sick in larger numbers, what were some of the staffing situations that you had to confront?
0: As we said
2: before, we've, we've dealt with a couple of epidemics, H1N1 and SARS, and we always had an increase in call volume, but we never really had this concern that our people were going to get sick like happened with COVID-19. So we weren't really comfortable with or used to having people not working with multiple partners the way our schedule is set up there's three people on every ambulance and two of them are always on duty so there's a rotation effect that goes on so a lot of people wind up interacting with a lot of people so this was really a challenge for us we took a couple of approaches when we first realized that we'd have to do something significant we tried to kind of match those platoons so we kept the same three platoons and we just tried to keep people that were in the same platoon together, so there was less cross-contact. And in retrospect, that wasn't the smoothest solution, but it was what we had to uh, come up with quickly. But long-term, we realized that we had to separate the people more effectively, and uh, we switched to a a 12-hour tour rotation which is essentially two platoons for the ambulance units. So half the job is on and half the job is off, and they don't really intermix too often.
1: In the case of the actual usual platoon schedule, two-thirds of the job is working at any given time over a 24-hour period. That's correct. Right, one-third is off. Correct. So the exposure to each other was pretty significant in that three platoon system, and it's three of us here, right? Let's say we were all on an ambulance together. If Chief Suriel got sick. Typically, he would give it to one or both of us before any of us even knew we were sick. And then within days of each other, the entire crew is out, which is an entire ambulance for, let's say, the day shift. And then there was potential that any of the three of us were passing this to the shift that relieved us and the shift that we relieved. So 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 we we were potentially taking out nine people at one time, right? Could be. Oh, and the officers yeah. too. And so exponentially, this COVID-19 is spreading, not just within the community, but within our smaller community of the Bureau of EMS. We switch now to the 12-hour tours. Do we see some relief with this? It took a
2: while to switch to a 12-hour tour. We have 4,000 members and modifying the schedule so dramatically, we wanted to make sure we weren't doing it without some thought behind it. So Mm -hmm. the management analysis and planning unit did a very thorough analysis for us. We didn't want to just haphazardly switch everybody over. So we took a a little bit of time to do it uh, and make sure that while we were taking care of social distancing, we were also meeting our obligations to the public and running enough tours to meet the demand.
1: Makes sense. So now concurrently, 911 call volume is rising exponentially every day.
0: So it's not only the call volume, it was the types of calls. Mm. So we saw a tremendous increase in cardiac arrests, you know, and that was taking a toll on our members. We've never seen numbers like that.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, because we average prior to the pandemic 60 to 70 cardiac arrests in a 24-hour period, and now suddenly we are at 100 cardiac arrests a day, and then it's 150 cardiac arrests a day, and then it's over 200 cardiac arrests a day, and I think we peak at 300 and change for a period of time. That wasn't like it hit that number one day. It stayed there for a period of time before it starts coming down again. And actually, it took a significant number of weeks for cardiac arrests to even come down to 100 a day, which is still higher than normal.
2: The regular call volume dropped pretty quickly after about the first month, but the, the cardiac arrest continued for quite some time. Mm.
1: The
0: public announcements helped, just letting the public know to really just leave 911 for real emergencies and hospitals for the real sick patients. I actually know it worked because like Chief Pastilli said, the call volume in itself for just regular 911 calls that we normally get, that actually was okay. And we were getting the real sick people who were calling 911.
2: Yeah, our call volume elevated significantly mid-March, right. and and actually stayed very high and peaked on March 30th, and then dropped as quickly as it as it elevated. And uh, by April 14th, we were under our normal call volume. So it was a, it was a one-month stretch of a of a very rapid peak followed by a rapid decline. But the cardiac arrest stayed high right right through that.
1: Yeah, and well past that. Yeah, well past. Well past it. it. I would say probably through the summer and into the fall. It was well above normal cardiac arrest. And while all of this is going on, we have people all over the city dying from COVID, right? Uh, In the thousands, people are dying every day. So as the call volume is escalating, we have to come up with some ingenious and different approaches to the way we handle normal operations, right? Because as the call volume is increasing and the COVID sick leave is increasing, that limits the amount of resources we actually have in the field. So if we say that our normal ambulance count couldn't possibly absorb this increased call volume, we now actually have decreased ambulance count up to upwards of 25% of the workforce is out sick, right? So how do we start you know, making choices or policy changes how to react to this increased volume and less, you know, supply.
0: I think we all had some serious, difficult conversations, and we realized that we did need help. And, you know, Chief Villani from the planning unit reached out to Chief Bonsignor and, and suggested we activate the NAC units.
1: NAC stands for National Ambulance Contract.
0: And, and so she gave that approval, and I, and I think that played another key role in our operations. Chief Escobar and his team at the academy took that on, I believe we started March 30th with about 50 units. We ended up maxing out at about 207 units. It was pretty impressive from all across the US. We saw ambulances from California, from Texas, Colorado, Ohio. Arizona. All these EMTs and paramedics from across the country came to assist us, so that really helped us accomplish the mission.
2: Yeah, we normally have a graduated response when we need additional units. First, we look internally. We increase our tour count, right. which was difficult because of the number of people on sick leave. Then we asked the voluntary hospitals, which are one-third of our operation, to do the same, mm-hmm. but they were running into the same issues, high sick leave rates. The next thing we do is ask volunteers to participate, which they did to a certain extent, but only a limited amount. So the decision to request the National Ambulance Contract Units through FEMA, through NYSUM and New York State, was made very early. And I think that was really key to our ability to
0: respond to it. Yeah,
1: I agree. I, in fact, I would say it was so early, some people thought we were prematurely making this request. Yeah, yeah. absolutely right? not.
0: Yeah. And, and it took the time because, you know, all of a sudden we, we went from 50 to 207 units and we have to dispatch. These members who were coming had no idea of where they were going. The CAD group did an amazing job in getting us the ability through cell phones to dispatch. Mm. And that was that was huge for us.
1: Yeah, that's a game changer.
0: Yeah, and EMD did their satellite dispatching. They set up a tent. Chief Werner and her team did an amazing job over there as well. So. It was a group effort, but uh, this happened within days. It's like we had no time to really plan. A lot of times we were learning as we go, let's just say, And, and we had to change policies quickly. We would put out an order, and within the same day, we would get something different from the CDC, and those policies had to change as well. So it was quick moving
1: all of these things were happening concurrently yes. right there were long days it was not uncommon for us all to still be on a policy phone call at 11:30 at night that's correct i recall from march 13th until easter sunday there was no day off most work days started by 6 or 7 in the morning and easily still going on 11, 12 o'clock at night.
0: And the same thing happened for our EMTs, paramedics, and officers. Right. Working long hours. A lot of them were working too many hours where we had to say, hey, you know, go get some rest. Right. You know, but they were very engaged, and they stepped up as always.
1: This was an escalating mass casualty incident, right, with no end in sight. It's increasing exponentially each day. How do you feel... You were able to manage the stress of that because in the moment, it's a pretty stressful thing, right? It, it was compared to flying the plane while you're building it.
0: That's a good analogy, actually. You don't have a choice. You right. just don't
2: have a choice. If you're in these positions and these roles in this kind of organization, this is what we do. Right. And there's no saying no. Right. We just
0: do it. Long nights, some difficult decisions, some unpopular decisions, but things that needed to happen. And very short time to give explanations. It was like, this is what we need, and we need it now, and that was it. So that was difficult at times to get that through to the field. But they, they hung in there.
1: I think the performance of our EMTs, paramedics, our officers, all our boots on the ground was tremendous. And still is, right? We're still in the pandemic. Although our cold volume has dropped by comparison to that peak, it's still difficult, right? Cardiac arrests, we see spike every now and then.
0: One of the biggest things I think that we dealt with with the field was uh, PPE. Right. PPE was difficult to obtain, and we were not only dealing with trying to get PPE within New York City. Right. Everyone was trying to get PPE, but the IMT did a great job with that. And I, I got to say that, though, yes, we came close at times, right? And we had to scramble many times, but our members had the PPE. Right. They had the mask. There were hospitals who were having a very, very hard time. They started reusing things while our members were not going through that. So that was difficult but well done.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. At what point did you say we got to start looking at some alternative to the N95 where we started to explore the half face elastomeric mask?
0: Yeah, I, think, I think that happened as soon as we saw that the. Uh, was in March. Yeah, mm-hmm. March. Oh, it and, was March. And how quick so. yeah. the, the requests were coming in for additional PPE supplies.
1: Right. I mean, we were struggling like everybody else, right? Yeah. There's a supply chain issue at that point. It was not to us.
0: That was, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of equipment, not just PPE, right? Cleaning
2: supplies, Cleaning very supplies. Difficult right. to get. As a department, we didn't just change how we respond to calls or what we did on calls, but we had to change pretty much everything. We had to change staffing, we had to mm-hmm. change cleaning requirements, decontamination of vehicles, decontamination of facilities, especially facilities that had a high rate of sick leave so that we contained the spread. But there's a lot of challenges that just we just never saw before. We've seen a gradual increase in call volume, a bad day here or there, but we went from like 4,000 to 4,500 to 5,000 to 5,500 in less than two weeks and then peaked at 6,527, 50% more than our regular call volume prior to that. So. There were so many things to manage and so many things that we hadn't experienced before that we were, we were just making decisions very rapidly.
0: Even with our leased vehicles.
2: Yes, we made the decision early. I think March 14th, we made the request along with fleet and support services. Right, that was
1: anticipating that we may have a slower turnaround of ambulances that break down and require mechanical repair. And
2: and also, just like we had no idea what the volume was going to be, we had no idea what the resources we were going to have were going to be. Both our resources, because we didn't know if our sick leave rate was going to progress, and also the National Ambulance Contract resources, We, we requested as many as we could get, and usually that's like 50. So it turns out that they sent a lot, and so we got a lot more than we normally would have. There's no getting through something like this without everybody doing their part. All hands on deck. Everybody. (laughs) All the support services and the people with the boots on the ground and the people behind the scenes. You just never could have done it without them. The commitment level is just tremendous.
0: We had retirees calling us if there was any way that they could come back and quickly sign up so they could help.
1: Yeah, and at least at that point, we, New York City, we were the epicenter, right? So we weren't really competing with anyone else in the country to get the resources of these additional certified EMTs and paramedics from all over the country. Shortly after our surge starts to come down and we release the NAC units, they get redeployed elsewhere in the country. Specific to handling a large-scale event that's widespread, the last time we had to do something even closely resembling this was Superstorm Sandy. But even Superstorm Sandy in the days after the actual storm are affecting isolated areas of the city, right? Mostly the coastal areas of the city. And it, it affected us in a big way. We had members who lost everything, right? They lost their house. They lost their car. They lost even everything in their station because some of our Ambulance stations were totaled, but it's fair to say that this was still in pockets of the city as opposed to a, a citywide event. Is, would that be accurate? And how would you say it compares?
0: I look at Superstorm Sandy as, as an event, it happened, and then the rest was kind of like recovery, but mm-hmm. COVID just kept coming right it was daily it was weeks kept going by and there was no light at the end of the tunnel really Mm -hmm. we kept planning as if it wasn't going to end anytime soon
1: right do you think we're better prepared for each subsequent surge since you know last spring
0: Uh, absolutely i would say yes
2: yeah, absolutely. We started out with our plan that came out of H1N1 in 2009. And interestingly, when I looked at the data, I realized we were about a thousand calls a day higher than we were in 2009. So we just essentially took that plan and its triggers and added a thousand calls to it to know what to do. So that was a great start. We weren't starting from scratch. right? So we're certainly much more prepared than we were prior to COVID-19. And we were more prepared for COVID than we were prior to H1N1 and so on.
1: Well, some of our policies too that we had to create are unique to this spike in call volume coupled with lack of personnel, right? Because they're affected by the the virus as well. So specifically something that got a lot of press coverage when we changed the cardiac arrest policy, right, of how long we're going to work up a cardiac arrest at the scene of an emergency outside of the hospital. And for our listeners who are not familiar with our system, we bring the emergency room to the patient. So anything we're doing for that cardiac arrest victim in their home or wherever that emergency call is, is exactly what would be provided in the emergency room. But right now, we're at a policy where we work up that cardiac arrest for as long as it takes. Right. And there's a limit, but it could go upwards of a whole hour working on a cardiac arrest before we call it. We had to change that policy though, right? Because we have a lack of resources and we have these cardiac arrests rising exponentially. And so we have to make this policy change, which now is in writing. So why don't you tell us about the policy change? Because if we reach this point again, we're not gonna have to sit around and discuss how do we change it? What do we change? What's the right thing to do? We've already made those decisions, but you know, give us a brief overview of what that policy change was.
2: Some of our policy is is driven internally and some of it's driven externally. We have a regional emergency medical services council that kind of controls our protocols, and they modified the protocols that apply to us. New York State Department of Health also modified protocols that apply to us. But when you're in these situations, and this is essentially triage on a huge scale, it's about matching resources to need. And not just our resources. We have to take into account the hospital resources as well. So we saw with COVID there was a a curve, a big rise in our patient count that was about a week ahead of the hospitals. So the, the hospitals surged about a week after us. So then we got to this place where the hospitals couldn't manage the patients either. So we had to make decisions that we made in conjunction with REMSCO and New York State DOH, to not only not work up some patients that had a very low likelihood of success, but also not transport them to the hospital because the hospital was so overwhelmed that they couldn't even take care of them, even if they had a chance. You know, these are very hard decisions. These are not easy decisions, but we're always about doing the most good for the most patients.
1: Right. So should we have a surge that's similar in escalation, again, whether it's COVID or some, something else, we're basically going to dust off these policies that we created Absolutely. and implement them again right
2: it's nice to know that we did things and made decisions and got
0: things done that weren't just for the moment that you know we'll carry on and we'll and even uh, you can talk a little bit about fallback because i think that continues to help us we really didn't use that that much in, and it's just the way we dispatch our units that changed a little but it continues to help us when we have busy days
2: We have three levels of fallback in which we modify the resources we send to a call based on availability. We have a lot of calls that we usually send a a paramedic unit, a BLS unit, a CFR unit, and an officer to. And when we go into fallback, depending on which level of fallback, those things get modified a little bit. Mm -hmm. So the first one is if the ALS unit is greater than 10 minutes away and there's a BLS unit that's closer and it's normally just an ALS response, we would send the ALS and the BLS. When we have low availability, we cut that back a little, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we still send CFR. And as long as we have a transport ALS, the CFR can supply the BLS care. So, there's no negative impact to the patient. Just a little bit less resources that we send to the scene. And then another level of fallback, we send whichever unit's closer, regardless of whether it's ALS or BLS. And this way, uh, we're making sure we get somebody to the call quickly, but we're also only if the ALS is needed, if the BLS got there first, the last for them.
1: Right. And that would be because we have fewer ALS resources, right? Yes. ALS is advanced life support, which is staffed by paramedics. BLS is basic life support, which is staffed by EMTs and CFR, Certified First Responder, are firefighters on engine companies. Correct. Unique to this pandemic and hopefully never happens again. Every critical patient we are transporting, which is significant numbers, we have to tell family members they cannot go to the hospital with their loved one on top of all the other stressors. And I know you can both relate to that. I, mean, I could tear up myself just thinking about... Yeah having to tell people, you cannot come with us. And deep down, we know this is probably the last time they're going to see their loved one alive. We know that happened all day, every day, for weeks. So when things start to calm down a little and it's de-escalating in call volume, we have this moment of reality where we can accept that this is a This was a big problem and it was very emotional and difficult for our members. So how do we start reconciling how to help them cope and build resiliency to get through this piece of the pandemic?
0: COVID was uh, obviously very difficult for our members. It took a toll on them, not only with the day-to-day cardiac arrest, but also dealing with their own sick family members, financial strains, the stress of not wanting to bring COVID home. They started dealing with domestic issues and even uh, substance abuse. So, as a department, we started a peer support team. It's composed of about 100 members EMTs, paramedics, and officers, all peers. The goal is information sharing, sometimes just to lend an ear, and it's good to just have co workers that you can speak to. So, we took that on, and you know, we got very involved with the counseling service unit. They offer our member family counseling, substance abuse counseling. And we hope with the peer support team that that would open the door for our members to get help if they, if they needed help.
2: Right. These are very challenging times. We talk COVID fatigue. Right? Right. It's one thing, and we've all been through this, where somebody passes away and you have to tell the family members. But the not knowing how they're going to turn out and not being able to go to the hospital, that continued well after the peak. That's still going on in some places. So the, the department has really been supportive in a lot of ways.
0: It was tough. We, we lost four members to COVID. And not only that, but to see your partner and your co-workers get sick, like mm-hmm. really sick.
1: Yeah.
0: And being in hospitals for months, that takes a toll. Yeah. That takes a toll. And then you wonder if you're next. But to their credit, they still kept coming to work. Yeah. They kept coming to work.
1: Because that's what we do. We've also lost members across the ranks, right? Fire inspectors, mechanics, firefighters, civilians.
0: We lost a member from the national ambulance contract also.
1: That's right. He came here to help. Came here to help. EMS was put into a public spotlight in a way that I would say we all are in our fourth decade. Mm -hmm. Um, We've never seen this before, the way EMS was spotlighted by the press. How do you feel about the feedback that we get from the public based on that?
0: I think what changed is that it brought to light what we really do. And I hope that the public sees that what they are are heroes. It's just been a horrible experience for many of us. I don't think COVID has not touched a single person, whether through a friend or a family or coworkers. And like you said, they bring the emergency room to the house and some people don't recognize or realize or maybe they don't know that we don't just take people to the hospital we treat and a lot of the what we call saves are saves because you don't go into cardiac arrest because they intervene and it's that knowledge and that dedication that i think that the public hopefully sees in all our members now that i don't think many saw before
2: I- love the cover of the daily news with the Statue of Liberty as a female EMT the patient was just a, one of the best covers ever but I would like to see them get recognized more you know than, than they do
1: agreed well this has been quite enlightening thank you both for joining us today and sharing this information I think you know because it is still a uh, state of a pandemic and various communities have their own escalation of this emergency. I, I think they can learn from hearing both of you today. So thank you so much for joining us. Well,
0: thank you for having us. Thank Appreciate you. it.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org.